Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Winnigal and I'm joined today by my co-hosts Laura Perry and Michael Steindl. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you going? Yeah, very well. Today, we're speaking to Tim Forsey, who's an energy advisor at Melbourne Energy Institute, the University of Melbourne. He has 35 years of experience in electricity, oil, gas and petrochemicals, with a focus on energy production, transmission and consumption. Former employers include ExxonMobil, BHP Billiton, Gemini, and he has specific experience with assets such as the Bass Strait Joint Venture and the Queensland Gas Pipeline. During his time at Australian Energy Market Operator, Tim led the publication of the 2011 Gas Statement of Opportunities, the 2012 South Australian Electricity Report and AEMO 100% Renewables Energy Study, Modelling Inputs and Assumptions. With MEI, Tim has published reports and articles covering gas and electricity demand, gas to fuel electricity fuel switching and pumped hydro energy storage and commercial applications. He also works part-time as a home energy consultant with the Moreland Energy Foundation Positive Charge. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. Good to see you again. We've good to be here. Had you in a few times? Yes, you've been uh, on the show before, yes. Yeah. So given that we have had you in before, but for the benefit of our listeners, can you just give us a pricey of your background? Yeah, you ask that question every time, and, uh, <laughs> but it has made me go back and think about why I've ended up um, uh, where I'm at these days. And a couple of new points, I suppose, for <laughs> listeners. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in the country, and um, I think that when you have that sort of an upbringing, you're very interested in sustainability and conserving resources. So I grew up with that. And then also, when I was a bit younger, there were the, uh, the energy crises of the 1970s into the 1980s. And so I remembered doing things like helping my dad put an extra layer of uh, insulation around the hot water heater back in probably like 1975. So those were the sorts of things we were doing then that uh, are the sorts of things that people also need to be doing now. And then later when I graduated um, with a chemical engineering degree and moved into industry, I was still very interested in uh, conserving resources and doing things uh, as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Let's get on to your recently um, released article, which is really quite exciting about how the export boom is shaking up the Australia's gas market. You drew our attention to the fact that gas was actually being vacuumed up. You called it vacuuming, which I thought was a great term, from Victoria to Queensland. And prior to that, it was always flowing the other direction. Can you explain a bit about how that came about? Sure. The, uh, in eastern Australia, we have this interconnected gas market from Queensland all the way down to Tasmania and over to South Australia. It's all connected up by pipelines. And traditionally, that had just been uh, used for uh, purposes with, within the country. There was no way to export the gas. And so um, gas in those days was pretty much a byproduct of oil production. So like down at Bass Strait, the main game was producing oil and even LPG. And you had this gas, which always got in the way. And the government didn't let you just f f vent it or flare it. 
So it got in the way. You could only produce oil sometimes as quickly as you could get rid of the gas. So companies like uh, Esso and BHP were always looking for new markets, but the domestic market within Eastern Australia was limited. But um, then there was the uh, discovery that with the coal seam gas up in Queensland, there was obviously a lot of gas up there, and some companies decided that uh, since there was so much gas and the local market was limited, that they would spend, and it's now up to about $80 billion uh, investing in plants that can liquefy the gas and put it on a ship and export it to Asia. So that's, uh, those plants are, have been starting up in, in the, the last recent year or so and still starting up. There's six uh, LNG plants up there in Gladstone, Queensland, and they've started the export of the gas overseas. Um, so that has really changed the local market from being what had been a buyer's market um, you know, there was this waste product, basically gas, that um, the buyers could negotiate a good price on. But now what we've seen that change to a seller's market because um, gas can now be exported to Asia. So um, with that in mind then, I'm, I'm wondering why with the world prices going down um, on gas, um, but the eastern seaboard prices seem to be going up. Can you tell us what mechanisms are coming into place? Yeah, there's a, we, we've talked on this show before and there's been a lot written that... Um, as the market became more of a uh, of a seller's market, that the domestic gas prices in Eastern Australia would go up, and gas would be harder to find or get a long-term contract for, and that's that's still the case. So um, there's certainly been a, a lot of angst in industry amongst uh, gas users. Where am I going to get my gas? The price has doubled. Maybe it'll be triple on the wholesale market compared to what it was before, and this is sending shockwaves through those that use a lot of gas in Eastern Australia. Um, now, more recently, the price of oil has crashed, and so people are saying, oh, well, that should make gas cheap again. Okay, good luck. Really, what it comes down to is the negotiation that occurs between the gas sellers and the gas buyers. And so the gas buyers will say, look, the price of oil has gone down, so I should go back to cheap gas. But the gas sellers, on the other hand, might say, um, well, look, we've got these long-term contracts to sell the gas to Asia. Um, yes, the, the prices that they receive uh, are a function to a certain extent of oil prices. So, so those exporters are even going to be under a bit of a pinch because the money they thought they'd get from exporting this gas, well, it's not going to be as high as it was before. Mm. So do you think that'll put them in a charitable mood when they sit down across the negotiating table with domestic uh, consumers? Don't know. <laughs> so following on from that, the, the export LNG gas was originally to come from the, the coal seam gas generation. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of gas in the coal seams up in Queensland. But one thing that I noticed recently, and this information is available transparently on the websites of the Australian Energy Market Operator, is that uh, you've got the Moomba to Sydney pipeline which for going back into the 1970s was a way to get gas from the uh, Moomba gas fields. And that's, that's the conventional gas that's produced as a byproduct of that's the, in the South oil Australia, LPG. Yeah, up in that corner there of South Australia and Queensland, the Moomba gas field. And so back in the 70s, this pipeline was run all the way to Sydney to bring the gas down to Sydney and supply Sydney. And then in later times, BHP built a pipeline from Bass Strait up to Sydney. So Sydney had multiple supplies of gas. And, uh, of course, that Moomba to Sydney pipeline, gas always flowed south to Sydney. But um, uh, what happened recently is the owner of that pipeline has uh, spent a bit of money to uh, fix it up so that it can run in the other direction. And then starting in December, I noticed that, indeed, the pipeline has started to flow in the other direction. So rather than gas uh, supplying Sydney, which have basically is Bass Strait gas from Victoria, 
going up the pipelines to New South Wales and then all the way up to Moomba and then it goes over into Queensland where it can augment the supplies of gas that are being used for the export. Now this wasn't the original plan because it is very, very expensive to get that gas off of SOBHP and then ship it all that way. So that wasn't the plan. The coal seam gas uh, companies, their plan was that they would drill up to something like 40,000 wells in Queensland and even into New South Wales to tap the coal seam gas and supply those export plants. So something's gone wrong here, and uh, we now see gas flowing the other direction. Mm. And and what has gone wrong? Is that the Lock the Gate campaign? Is it technical difficulties? What is it? Yeah, I haven't studied it in quantitative detail, but you can add up all those things. Uh, some years ago, there were big weather problems with the floods, and so that made it difficult to get yeah, the drill rigs into where they needed to be. And, and in more recent times, yes, uh, the greenies and the farmers have said, hold on, what's going on? Maybe I don't want 40,000 wells on my property. Mm-hmm. Um, and also geological issues. There were certain companies that looked at the coal seam gas, and if you take an example of BHP, they obviously have the assets of a lot of coal in that area. And originally they did look at coal seam gas in Queensland and decided not to pursue it because there are risks, uh, geological risks, you might say. You never know exactly what's uh, under the ground there and what's going to happen when you start drilling wells into it and how well the gas will flow. So I haven't researched it in, in quantitative detail to work out what exactly are the big problems, mm-hmm. but it is very plain there for everybody to see that gas is now flowing um, all the way from Victoria up to Queensland to augment the supplies as these gas plants start up. And they're not even up at full capacity yet. Mm-hmm. The vacuum that Kay was talking about. Well, Just- the vacuuming, that wasn't actually my term. That was a term that I quoted from uh, the forder, former head of AGL. And a few years ago, he said, there will be a big vacuum sucking up gas off the East Coast. So um, I didn't invent that. Uh, the head of AGL did, and indeed, that's what's happening now. Tim, just as a slight tangent, um, are you able to clarify for us, because I know I was somewhat confused, and I know a lot of other people are, about uh, exactly what coal seam gas is versus the shale gas um, all right, three, three kinds of gas, probably. Uh, the conventional gas. Mm-hmm. So that's like Bass Strait or Moomba that's been around for years. And like I say, it's a bit of a byproduct generally with the oil and gas production. So the, the oil companies are really looking for oil, and sometimes they find gas as well. And so then you've got to find a home or a market for that gas. That's, that's called like conventional. That's like the easy, easy gas. Yeah, you know, relatively easy. It wasn't <laughs> easy back in 1968 when ESSA was pioneering uh, building oil rigs in the Bass Strait. <laughs> um, but uh, these days it can be considered conventional. And one of the features of it is it takes a limited number of wells. I mean, there may be, you know, if we're talking about 40,000 wells for coal seam gas, you know, you could be talking about 100 wells for conventional gas because you're really hitting the uh, the mother load, so it's, to speak. It's sitting there in big pools and, and it can well, it's, it's sitting there in, 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 you know, under pressure in the sandstone rock and it flows easily and, and out it comes from yeah. drilling one big well. Now, the coal seam gas is different because the gas is kind of saturated within these coal, strips, coal seams and to get at it, you need to develop some new techniques, and so this was pioneered in the in the 1990s and into the you know beginning of this century. And it involves first of all drilling into the coal seams and then doing horizontal drilling because these coal seams are flattened, and the gas isn't coming going to come to you. You have to go get it basically by drilling horizontally through these coal seams, and then you have to pump out the water that's in these coal seams because it's really the water that is trapping that gas. So you pump that out, and in some cases you might have to do the hydraulic fracturing or the fracking, Mm -hmm. not in every single case in coal seams, but sometimes. And that means you pump water and other fluids and and sand 
uh, under the ground at enormous pressures to crack the earth, to crack those seams so that the gas will flow out of it into these horizontal wells and back up to the And the, the sand surface. keeps the cracks open. Yeah, they call it propant because mm -hmm. it props up the cracks mm -hmm. once okay. you've blasted the, the cracks and fractured the the uh, earth down and there. And then the shale? And now the, um, the shale is another type of gas, and this is very popular in America. So shale, people have seen shale if they've... Uh, you know, seen a rock formation or, uh, and uh, so that's very dense rock, but um, again, with various technologies they work, they worked out, they could actually get gas to flow out of those shales. And this was developed largely in America and it's going uh, on in a big way in America. And from those, that shale, they can get gas, but they can also again get oil. And um, so that's done in a big way in America. That pretty much always involves fracking because the, uh, the shale is a much harder thing than the coal, for example. And, um, you know, companies would have drilled through those layers of shale years ago and, and noticed there was oil and gas there, but it didn't flow. Mm. But these techniques of the horizontal drilling and the hydraulic fracturing allow uh, the flow to come of the gas and the oil out of the shale. Now, mostly that's being done in America in a huge way. In Australia, not such a big way right at this time. So you've got your conventional gas and, uh, or oil and gas, and then you have these unconventional means yeah. which uh, wrap up the coal seam gas and the, and the shale. So back to the implications of this uh, vacuuming the gas up to Queensland and shipping it offshore, what are your predictions for the effect that's going to have over the next 10 years um, to the price of gas versus the price of electricity? Yeah, I think there will be ongoing pressure for those that buy gas in eastern Australia. Uh, that's a fact of life now. Uh, the cheap prices that we had for decades is gone, so people just have to get used to that. And this will be quite significant, I think, politically, because, you know, we had that big noise about electricity prices go up. But I can't think of a single person that lost their job because of rising electricity prices. Mm -hmm. But gas prices are going up, and there will be companies closed because of the higher gas prices. Maybe they were fairly inefficient operation in the past uh, because there was no reason to be more efficient. Gas was cheap. But now to uh, maintain competitiveness... Uh, since uh, cheap gas is gone, they might have to invest heavily in more efficient facilities, and maybe they can't find the money to do that, and maybe it'll be easier to just close. So that uh, could happen and will be a bit of a political issue. Um, but what it does mean is there's, you know, with every uh, crisis, there's an opportunity, and um, that's where we at the University of Melbourne Energy Institute um, a few months ago published a study where we looked at gas demand in eastern Australia, and we also looked at the opportunities that that people in their homes or businesses, industry would have for what I call economic fuel switching. Mm. So you've been on gas for years, but now let's look around and see if there's some alternatives. And one that uh, has been quite notable, notable in the media is the opportunity for people to, instead of heating their homes with gas, to be using the reverse cycle air conditioner that they might already have hanging on their wall. Just before we get on to that, um, you were mentioning in the report that Eventually, three times as much gas in the form of LNG will be exported from Queensland as has been historically used in all of Eastern Australia. So given that gas is composed of a potent greenhouse gas, methane, and that's 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide, how does that fit in with um, what's, what your predictions are as to the amount that's going to be used? The, um, yeah, yes, the uh, amount of gas that will be exported from Queensland is, is huge, three times greater than uh, what has traditionally been used in Eastern Australia, and that's just with these six uh, LNG trains that have been built. At one point, there was talk of 20, 20 trains being built in Queensland. Uh, we might not see that, but there, there are these six that have already been built and are coming into production. So that is enormous. And one thing that uh, any gas producer 
um, should uh, be concerned about is uh, any gas they might leak because as you say the methane is a very potent greenhouse gas compared to carbon dioxide it's up to 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide when you look at um, what it can do to the planet over the next 20 20 years and so it's a very potent greenhouse gas and it's something that the companies should try to minimize the leakage but then again what why would they do that there's no carbon price in australia right now so they don't suffer any financial penalty penalty for leaking um, like i said there's so much gas up there that uh, if they leak a bit uh, well big deal maybe that um, you know they're still going to be able to uh, in the long term find find other gas um, it comes down to how much effort they want to put into making sure that things don't uh, leak. But also there's some, some areas of science that probably and geology that probably haven't been adequately researched right now. And I mentioned in those coal seams how you have to dewater the coal seams and so the gas comes out. Well, some of that gas will, will come into your well, but some of the rest of it may well just leak up through the ground and out into the atmosphere. These are called um, migratory methane fugitive emissions. And quantifying those is, uh, is a challenge and more research is needed in that area. There were some satellite measurements uh, where uh, satellite uh, information from over America was uh, analyzed and they found a huge hotspot over uh, New Mexico in America, a huge amount of methane being coming into the atmosphere there, uh, quite unexpected. They thought it was a mistake in the data to begin with, but they checked it out and, uh, that, and they found that it was real. And so now researchers in America are trying to figure out where's all that methane coming from at the hotspot in New Mexico. But it um, turns out that's the largest coal seam gas production area in America. Coincidence? Mm -hmm. Not so sure. <laughs> now, uh, for those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and we're talking to Tim Forsey, the Energy Advisor for the Institute of Melbourne. And we're just discussing his recently published article about the reversal of gas flow in the pipelines along the eastern seaboard between Victoria and Queensland and the implications that this will have on our domestic market prices. So, Tim, the other uh, or another really interesting thing you've been talking about recently, and, and I think a great concept to actually clarify for our listeners, is the effect of using heat pumps and and, and the true benefits of that. So, given gas has, has been very cheap historically, and we're now facing big rises, can you talk to us about the uh, alternatives in the homes for hot water systems, air conditioning, gas cookers, etc.? Yeah, certainly. The um, I call it economic fuel switching. Because when you actually look at the economics, it turns out you're better off to switch uh, energy uh, uh, sources. And for a lot of Victorians, say, we're here in Victoria at the moment, many Victorians have used gas to heat their homes and, and businesses and commercial buildings, etc. over the last decades because gas was cheap and that was the way to go. But also in more recent times, people have been installing a lot of reverse cycle air conditioners because it gets hotter every summer and people would like to be more comfortable, so they put in a reverse cycle air conditioner. And they use it in the summer as a cooler. But the reverse cycle means that you can actually you know, hit the other button, heat, and it will actually uh, turn the refrigeration cycle in that machine around the other way. And instead of sucking heat out of your house and rejecting it outside, as it does in the summer, it sucks heat out of the outside in the middle of winter and brings it into your house. And this is known as a, a heat pump in uh, America, Canada, Japan, Europe, even New Zealand, Tasmania. Tasmania, they call it heat pumps. Here we tend to call them reverse cycle air conditioners. But what it does is it pumps heat in the wintertime. It pumps heat from the outside of your house inside. Even if it's only zero degrees or minus two outside, it can still do it because the, refrigerate, the refrigerant running around in that machine is like minus 20 uh, Celsius. And so it can, it can basically suck heat in from the outside air. And this is renewable energy. This is a form of solar energy. Uh, the air outside our house is in the middle of winter is, 
is zero degrees thanks to the sun. If it weren't, it might be minus 250 like the surface of the moon. So there's always heat in the air outside, and that's what the technology of the heat pump can do is to bring that into your home quite efficiently. Um, it's not a new technology. When I was a kid in the 1970s, heat pumps were used in America, but they're a lot more efficient now than they used to be. You put in a bit of electricity, and you get a lot of heat out. In the old days, you might put in one unit of electricity and get two, unit, two units of heat. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it was about 200% efficient. Mm -hmm. These days, you can buy them. They're 600% efficient. Mm -hmm. So for every one unit of electricity you buy, you're getting, um, okay, I'm lost in maths here, five or six parts of uh, <laughs> yeah. a free yep. renewable energy um, that is being sucked into your house. And one of the things we, we looked at in the Melvin Uni study is that, yes, it's actually an economic thing to do. And uh, also, we're all ready. So some people out there don't know they should use the reverse cycle air conditioner, mm -hmm. but other people are already doing it because maybe it's all they have in their home, particularly in places like Queensland or New South Wales. And so we worked out that there's already more renewable energy being recovered by these heat pumps than by all the solar panels we put on our roof. Who knew? Mm -hmm. You know, nobody's been adding this up before. So mm -hmm. it's, it's quite remarkable. You do not get like renewable energy certificates or any sort of government benefit for buying a reverse cycle air conditioner at this time in the main. Um, but of course, everybody knows you do get some incentives for putting up a solar panel because the, um, you know, the community's interested in supporting renewable energy. Um, but uh, it's kind of a big secret that these uh, reverse cycle air conditioners are also a big part of our renewable energy solution for Australia. Now, Beyond Zero Emissions knew this a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And if you look in the Beyond Zero Buildings Plan, well, it's, it's heat pumps, heat pumps, heat pumps for space heating, as we've just described. Mm. But also um, the same sort of thing uh, can be done for water heating. And there are already about 200,000 hot water heat pumps that have been sold in Australia. And I know that because you do get renewable energy certificates for a hot water reverse cycle air conditioner, essentially, or heat pump. And we have um, the name is, is it Energy, the mob in, in Dandenong that are actually locally producing the heat pumps? I think the, um, you and know, the, the rotating equipment and compressors, et cetera, come from overseas, but at least the tanks can be built in Australia mm -hmm. or are being built in Australia. And so, yes, there's, uh, you know, buyers. And that's actually being done by a cooperative here yeah, that, yeah. Um, where the workers have bought out the factory. And, and That's right. Buyers can look at the, um, you know, where the material is being made, if it's local yeah. or not. Uh, they can also look at the efficiencies of the equipment because there will be a range of different uh, efficiencies of this equipment. You know, for your reverse cycle air conditioner, you can buy a two-star, three-star, four-star, five-star, six-star, seven-star. Mm. And uh, so I always say to people, look at that government website, energyrating.gov.au. It lists all the, heat, uh, all the um, heat pumps on the market and uh, buy a good one. If you go into your average white goods store, mm. they won't have anything above four stars, and you might think that's all that exists, but there's actually seven-star items on the market. Mm. So, uh, you know, buy the best one your uh, budget can afford. I use it for a few days in Melbourne, say, in the summer. Great. Um, but you'll use it for 100 days in the winter as your main source of heating. So and things I like the, the understand also that um, now they bring in normal air from the outside as well. So it's not just refrigerated air, which doesn't have the, the moisture in it. Yeah, there's um, a lot of different new features that you can get with these things. It's like anything else. 20 years ago, you couldn't get these. 
they weren't as efficient they didn't have all the features now they got all kinds of features yes the uh, units i have in my house can actually in the winter time bring in humidity mm. using a desiccant wheel if you want to get into the technology which is a very efficient way to bring in humidity mm. and so i turn the heat on and the, and the humidity bring the humidity up which means that you can be more comfortable at actually a lower temperature yeah. Yeah. so rather than blasting a lot of hot dry air into the place you can uh, blast some not quite so hot but very humid air in which feels quite comfortable in fact it feels like a holiday going to queensland <laughs> in melbourne in the middle of winter <laughs> Lord, so that's the winter use yeah, so <clears throat> we're used to it doing the reverse in summer where it's actually uh, dehydrating the air and, and making it cooler but yeah and that, that's right and there are items on the market where you can take the humidity out of the air without making it cooler because some people mm. sometimes the only way if you don't have all that equipment it to make to drop the humidity is to just make it colder, 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 which can be uncomfortable. Mm. But uh, these days on the market, you can find ones, again, with the desiccant wheel that can suck the humidity out of the air in the summertime without making it cooler. And again, that can make it feel a lot more comfortable. And that's a very efficient thing to do because these desiccant wheels are even more efficient than uh, the refrigeration cycle that's in that equipment. So just to make sure that I've got this clear, these heat pumps, they're basically your refrigerator, only instead of having it take it out from the inside of the fridge and pumping it out into your room, you separate those two components and, and put the other radiator outside. Then you're talking about this percentage efficiency, which is known as the COP, the coefficient of performance, where you get these factors of two, three, four, five, and as you said, we can even get six and seven now, like the Daconaluru, I think. Um, and that's actually taking one unit of electricity, pumping, say, six units of heat in or out. Then you've got the the question of whether you're using dirty coal-fired power to do that um, or you can go the final step and use green power whether it's your own solar panels or you're buying green power and you're absolutely doing the pristine um, zero carbon thing yeah i expect that for people that have solar and particularly in new south wales as they lose their um, good feed-in tariffs they're going to be looking around, what can I do with this electricity? I, I put in big solar system. I don't use that much electricity. used to get money for it. Now I don't. Should I buy an electric car? Should I get a Tesla battery? And one thing I say is uh, check out the hot water heat pump mm -hmm. because that way you can basically use hot water as a battery. And yep. uh, there are, you know, i got neighbors that are doing that. They set up their heat pump so that it uh, heats their water in the middle of the day when the sun is most likely to be its strongest. And so they basically capture their, their free solar energy and heat their water, and then it sits in the tank overnight, and they can use it the next morning. Mm -hmm. In places like Melbourne, the heat pumps, turns out, and BZE talked about this in their buildings plan, turns out these are actually more cost-effective even than the than the older mm -hmm. uh, solar thermal rooftop systems you'd see for hot water heating. That's, that's mm -hmm. really interesting. When I grew up, the SEC, as it was then, was constantly pushing this off-peak heating um, because they had these coal plants producing and wanted you to use lots of electricity at night. And now we've got exactly the same thing, only it's with our solar panels right in the middle of the day that we want to use our own electricity. That's right. Now off-peak is going to be, one of the off-peaks is going to be in the middle of the day <laughs> when all the solar is uh, churning out electricity, so suck that up and make hot water. Mm. Yeah. That's so, a good um, way of pointing out how um, relevant using that for um, hot water is because it's very hard to work out what, solution is available to you cost effective solution is available to well that's right and hot water quite water. quite often when people go to replace their hot water it's because it's just failed and they're cold wet and naked mm. they've come out of the shower <laughs> so um i say plan ahead when it's getting time to replace your hot water system
in the minute we've got left, Tim. These sort of co- uh, fuel switching alternatives, do they apply to commercial as well? Yeah, industry's got options there. The uh, uh, Australian Renewable Energy Agency has published a study that, that they had a, a contractor do, looking at the different opportunities for fuel switching for industry. So, again, even the industry can use heat pumps, bioenergy, etc. So it, it's definitely a, something that industry should be looking at. Fantastic. And uh, just before we wrap up, um, Tim, where can people go to find out a bit more information about all of this? I think the easiest way is my name. So Google <laughs> Tim Forsey, that's T-I-M and uh, F-O-R-C-E-Y. It's a unique name and you'll find all these articles. Lovely. Well, the Beyond Zero show is brought to you by Beyond Zero Emissions and syndicated through the 3CR radio station in Fitzroy. Um, and you can find us uh, on our podcast at bze.org.au. And you can follow us on Twitter as well. That's at BZE Tech Show. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Tim, for joining us. And thank you, Kay and Michael.